The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. With the uh, coming of a new year, before I got back into John, I just wanted to share some things on my heart. You know, this is the, the 14th anniversary of our church, and it's amazing to, to think about the times in which we live, and, and it, you know, it, it seems like the Lord is blessing our church, but at the same time, you look out on the horizon, and it's a very dark period in American history. There's a transgender revolution taking place. Seems like our military has never been weaker at the exact moment that Iran and North Korea and China and other countries are making threats. It's a, a very dark, uncertain period. But what's more frightening is the darkness that's in the church. The darkness that's in the church. And I think if we're going to see a reversal of the tide in America, it's going to be, it's going to be because America recovers the truth, doctrine, conviction. I want to give you some stats. This is from the 2022 uh, study of uh, the state of evangelicalism that, that uh, Ligonier did. Let me just give you a few of these stats. 56% of identifying evangelicals agreed with this statement, quote, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 43% agreed with this quote. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God, end quote. 26% agreed with this quote. The Bible, like all sacred literature, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. Have you ever encountered somebody like that? I've encountered people like that in the church. You know, you're, you're just talking to them, and they say, oh, yeah, you know, I know about Jonah. That, that's, a, that's a myth. That was a story that teaches a lesson. That's not, a, that's not real. Or Noah's Ark, you know, it was just a, a localized flood. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a global flood in the sense that the Bible says, or the crossing of the Red Sea. You know, there was really just a land bridge underneath the water that was basically three feet under the, under the you know, they walked across on that, that God really didn't part the sea. It's mythological. It's stories to teach us spiritual lessons. And I think the reason why the church is like this, I think why so many Christians don't know the truth is because the church somewhere along the way became worldly, where the church desired to have an influence with the world, so the church said, we are going to do things the world's way. Don't believe me? Just look at what Pope Francis said at the end of the year. He said, look, we're not going to endorse same-sex marriages, but we're going to bless them. Look at what Andy Stanley said at the end of the year. He said, we're not going to draw lines, we're going to draw circles. We're not going to say homosexuality is okay, but we're going to accept that into our church. What's going on? What's going on? It's a lack of conviction. It's a lack of fidelity to the truth. 
And what I think God's doing and what I pray God's doing and what I think God is doing here is he is raising up believers who have a spirit-filled backbone and will stand in the midst of the darkness. You know what's fascinating is that God always has a remnant. You know, when you think it's so dark, God always just seems to raise up someone. You remember in the, in the days of Ahab and Jezebel, Elijah goes to Mount Sinai. He's like, woe is me. And, and God says, you know, I've got 300 who haven't bowed the knee to Bel. When Saul disobeyed God, God had a shepherd tending sheep that he raised up. Who am I talking about? David. God always has his people. In the days of relics, indulgences, and homage to saints, God raised up Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin. And I think God is raising up a new generation of Christians that have conviction. And it's these people that God uses to advance his kingdom, people of purpose, uh, people with great conviction. What marks a Christian who has conviction? How do you know if a Christian has conviction or they don't have conviction? A Christian with conviction knows and fears God. That's it. They're not a t-shirt Christian. They have a genuine knowledge and fear of the Lord. David says, Psalm 16, 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Psalm 119, 165, great peace of those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. This year will be an incredibly evil year in which great darkness precipitates over the land. But the convictional Christian is able to walk through the miry bog, standing on the truths that they know to be true, standing on their relationship with the Lord. And they walk through the trials and through the darkness from conviction to conviction. They're anchors in the midst of the miry bog. You have that truth to stand on. And these types of Christians do marvelous things for the kingdom. But how does God do this? How does God make someone a convictional Christian? How does God take someone who is breathing threats and antagonistic to the church and then make them at the end of their life say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I've kept the faith. Who's that? Apostle Paul. How does God make an Apostle Paul? How does God make you a convictional Christian? Well, there's a group in the New Testament that are very similar, and I think a, an excellent case study, and that's the Corinthians. If you've ever been to Corinth, there's a huge hill behind the city. There was a temple with, with pagan sexual practices on the top, the temple of Aphrodite. Uh, the people in the midst of the city were involved in pagan emperor worship. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, that all sorts of sins were prevalent in the city of Corinth. And Paul says, but such were some of you. God redeemed you, God pulled you out of that, and God made you a person of conviction. So I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And this is a case study, if you will, of how God makes us people of conviction, people with spirit-filled backbones. And first, I want you to see how this is birthed, the birth of conviction. This is what God does. This isn't something that we do. God begins this conviction in our lives. Look at verse 1. 
He says, and when I came to you, brothers, this account of Paul coming to the Corinthians is recorded in Acts chapter 18. He was there for a year and a half. Acts 18.4 says he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Acts 18.5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Well, here in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul gives commentary on his method, what he was doing. And he does this by means of contrast. He states the negative first and then the positive. And he does this really throughout the whole chapter where he moves from the negative to the positive to the positive to the negative. So stay with me here. Look at how the contrast works. He says, I did this, second part of verse 1, not with the world's method, not with the world's method. I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. It wasn't the world's style of speech, uh, that, that word lofty, you could, it's a Greek word, huperoke, it means really a superior speech, a, a superior dialect, a, a uh, an elevated way of speaking. If you ever watched Magnum P.I., you know, you have, you have Magnum, you have T.C., you have Rick, but then you have Higgins. Higgins. And Higgins speaks in the Queen's English. He has an air of superiority, and he thinks everybody else is raving mad. And he always says, Magnum, what on earth is wrong with you? It's this, it's this lofty, elevated oratory. And Paul says the Greeks were known for this. They were known for this type of style. And he says, I didn't use that. I didn't rely on that. And he says, nor did I use the world's convictions. You know, there were great philosophers that had developed three, four hundred years before. You had the Stoics. You know, the Stoics, uh, really still influential today, but basically said, you know, you just need to be self-disciplined. That's what's wrong with you. You're not getting up early enough. You're not taking that cold shower. You're not sticking to your diet, you know. January 1, everybody's a stoic. <laughs> you, you just got to endure. Take, take the stiff upper lip. And then you had the Epicureans. They said, you know what? We're all going to die. Let's just live like Willie Nelson. We're just going to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And then you had the skeptics. And they said, you know, we can't really reach any level of enlightenment. We don't know. So let's just bask in our lack of knowledge. Kind of like the people in Chapel Hill, right? You know, <laughs> just we don't know. And Paul says, look, I didn't, I didn't rely on any of the, the knowledge and the style of the philosophers, and the problem with so much of the church today is that it tries to advance the kingdom with the world's methods. Yeah, we're, we're, people aren't using Greek philosophers today, but what are they using? Ibram Kendi? Harvard profs? They're going to the world to try to advance Christianity. How often have you gone to a church service when, and when you got there, you realized it was more of an entertainment circus? I remember I went to, the, I was visiting a, a buddy in college. We, we woke up and went to church with his parents and it was in the summer and the theme was like Christ at the beach or something. And they had turned the whole sanctuary into a beach. They'd imported tons of sand, and they had, you know, before the service started, they had the huge beach balls, and everybody's hitting them, and, you know, it's Christ at the, you know, what are we doing? What are we doing? When will we learn what the apostle knew? When will we learn? You don't make Christians with the world's methods. You know what you make with the world's methods? Worldly people. 
Look what the apostle did. This is the apostle's method, verse two. This is just a staggering verse. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The old King James used to say, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, look, the entrance into the land of conviction is through the narrow gate of Jesus Christ. It's this unexpected path. This method, this message of the crucifixion was not a popular message. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. It was a stumbling block to Jews because the Old Testament law said you're cursed if you're hung on a tree. So the Jews looked at the cross, they still look at the cross, many of them, and say, how could my Messiah have been crucified? That's a curse. For Greeks, what, you study Greek mythology, what are Greeks into? Strength. The Greeks look at the cross and the way they say, how can you call your God a, a crucified Messiah? That's not strong, that's weak. That doesn't work for us. And yet Paul says that the entrance into the land of conviction is only through Jesus Christ and him crucified. It was this method, this message of the cross, and this was his method. And, you know, I, I, I think about this. You know, here is this man of great learning. Paul was a brilliant Old Testament scholar. Paul knew more about the Bible than we'll ever forget. And uh, he says, I made it my intention, I endeavored to only speak this message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Do you know what a method actor is? A method actor is someone who, when they get on set, they stay in character the whole time. They say, I'm so committed to acting out this part, I'm not going to break character. So if somebody comes and talks to them, you know, and talks to them in their real name, they won't acknowledge it. Daniel Day-Lewis, you know Daniel Day-Lewis? Famous Academy Award, this is what he did. And I was reading one time he played an inmate and he said, I'm gonna go live in jail while we're filming. And he had members of the cast come and throw cold water on him while he was there in, in the cell because he's saying, I'm committed to being this character. Well, Paul obviously is not a method actor. He's not acting. But he's in a method apostle. He's committed to the method which is the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why such dogmatism on this? Parenthetically, this is the verse that is on Martin Lloyd-Jones's headstone in Wells, the great preacher in London. Why such a simple commitment from these great men? And here's why because the method is the only one that God uses to save sinners. That's the secret. That's the secret. It's not in the bells and whistles. It's, it's not in the cool shtick. It's not in the dark lights. It's not in adopting high academic verbiage. It's simply in the power of the message. Let's look at it. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the bedrock of all truth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Paul says in Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Conviction begins with the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It begins with a person, you meet Christ. You know, that, that's why Christians are so resistant to renounce their faith. 
Because it's not just theoretical facts. It's a person that we've met. It's Christ. I've met Christ, spiritually speaking. I know him. It's Jesus Christ and the fact of his crucifixion, the message of the atonement, the message of the cross, the message of what Christ did. And of course, this message is not popular because the message declares what? That we're sinners. That we're sinners. That's what's unpopular about the cross today. People don't want to acknowledge the fact of their sin. Don't tell me that I'm a sinner. But for you to understand the cross, you have to understand the fact that you, before God, are guilty, bankrupt, and deserve judgment. And God at the cross poured that judgment out on his son. That is the meaning of the cross. And the cross is where the power is. I once was reading about Billy Graham. He went and preached a crusade. And it just, that this particular night was cold. Very few people came forward. It didn't seem like it was effective. And he got back to his hotel room and he asked himself, what went wrong? What happened tonight? Where, where was the power? And he realized he'd left something out of his message. He hadn't preached the cross. See, the cross is the power of God unto salvation. We'll get to more of that in a minute. But I want you to see the next contrast that Paul makes, verse 3. It's not the power of personality. It's not the personality of the messenger. Look what he says. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. You know, Paul was, Paul was not a dynamic figure to look at. He didn't have a towering personality. Uh, one person described him as bow-legged and bald. You know, he, he wasn't he, he, he wasn't a, a Hollywood cover star. And he says, when I came to Corinth, he says, this, is, this was my state. I was in weakness. I had trepidation and fear. I was trembling. So the success cannot be attributed to the messenger, the appearance of the messenger. The power of the gospel is not in celebrity speakers or designer clothes or in cool confidence. The power of the gospel is the gospel. The power of the gospel is the message of the cross itself. And so, in fact, the more that, as you're evangelizing, the more that you can get yourself out of the way, the better. The, the less that people are thinking about you, and the more that they are thinking about the message, the more effective you will be because now they encounter the power of God. Here's the, here's, here's the positive side, verse four, the power of God. He says, in my speech, in my message, we're not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Not fancy rhetoric, not, not itching ears. He said it was simply this message of, Jesus Christ and him crucified, but he said this message was accompanied by a demonstration of the spirit and of power. What's he talking about? What's he talking about? Well, the word demonstration means proof, proof, proof that something happened, proof that something exists. He says the proof of God working the proof of the power was in the lives that were changed. The proof that the message was effective is that God raised dead sinners to life, that God transformed people who were walking contrary to God in paganism. And overnight, the light switch went off, went on in their heads, and they came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You know, when Paul was in Corinth, he wrote the book of Romans, and he said this, Romans 1.16, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. He'd seen the power of God in the message. God the Holy Spirit at work. Now, this is the hard thing. This is, this is do you believe that by simply proclaiming the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified, that you will see the power of God, God the Holy Spirit? I think that's the problem. Because people don't believe that. People are afraid that if we just resort to that, the church will die. You know, this is an entertainment culture. If, if we just give them the word of God, if we just give them Jesus Christ, people won't come, our church will be empty, nothing will change. See, the problem is, is people don't believe this, that the power really is here. Have you ever, do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever encountered the gospel and you weren't expecting it? And you just sense the Holy Spirit whoo, breathe life into your heart? Whoa, where did that come from? What's God doing? He's at work. And then you leave, and it's like you're a different person. And you, you feel like God met with you. Do you know what I'm talking about? That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I, I just went into the synagogues. I just, I just went out on the streets, and I just preached this message. And, and it was so simple. And, and, and I did it as this little bow-legged man. And people's lives were changed. And, and here's the amazing thing about this. Look at verse 5. He says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He said, the only reason these Corinthians knew that they were Christians wasn't because of me, wasn't because of the tactics, wasn't because of the presentation. It was only because of the message and the power of God. Can we say that as the American church? Honestly. How many people are self-deceived Christians because they showed up to a cult of personality? Or they showed up to an entertainment show. Yeah, I made a decision. Did you make a decision because it was the power of God or because there was a dancing Santa hanging from the ceiling? Why did you make the decision? Paul's saying if you know that it was the simple message, your faith isn't in anything else. It's in the power of God. You stand on strong footing. That is how convictional Christians are born. Verse six, now he shifts gears and he starts talking about the believer. So you're a born again Christian, you've trusted Christ in the gospel. Now he, he starts referencing how we build our convictional fortitude. It's the building of conviction, verse six. And this building of conviction happens through imparting divine revelation. Look at verse six. Among the mature. Now, among the mature, he's not necessarily saying that there's this mature class of Christians. He's talking here about all Christians, that, that you as a believer, if you are a true born-again believer, even if you're a, quote, baby Christian or a more mature Christian, all Christians have the commonality that they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that they are born again. And in that sense, Paul is saying amongst those types of people, those types of people who are born again, we do impart wisdom. Now, notice the negative. Starts with the negative. Look back at verse 6. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. That word age is the Greek word I own, and it refers to this period before Christ's second coming, this age. This age is passing away. 
And the, Christ, when he comes back, will usher in the age to come. And what Paul's saying is, look, to, to the believers, this is what we're about. We don't impart a wisdom of this age which will one day disappear. Uh, Paul says in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this I own, to this age. So what you will hear in terms of the wisdom of this age is nothing that will help you in the age to come. Now, I'm not saying that you won't hear things that help you to live life in this age. You know, you, you can, you, there, there's, people will tell you, you know, eat more protein, less carbs. Great. That'll help you. You're still gonna die. It'll help you. People will tell you, get eight hours of sleep. That'll help you in this age. You're still gonna die, but it'll help you. People will say, set meaningful goals, track your progress. You know, all these sorts of things. The leadership gurus will tell you to be more self-disciplined, but guess what? They all still die. None of that wisdom gets you into the age to come. And Paul says the wisdom of this age is passing away and the leaders of this age are passing away. They are here today and they are gone tomorrow. The household names today are forgotten in the future. All of this worldly age will ultimately pass away. And so he says, we don't impart that type of wisdom. We impart to the believer the hidden wisdom of God. Look at verse seven. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. That word secret is the Greek word mysterion, where we get our English word mystery. He says, we, we impart this secret hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages began. Now, a mystery that Paul, Paul defines what he means by mystery elsewhere in the New Testament, but a mystery is something that is hinted at in the Old Testament and revealed in the New Testament. In other words, the, the mystery is that the Messiah would come and die for sinners and save both the Jew and the Gentile. That was the mystery. It's hinted at in the Old Testament, but it's completely revealed in the New Testament. And Paul says that this mystery, look, look what he says, second part of verse seven. God decreed this before the ages for our glory. Can God revoke his decree? We don't, we don't really understand decrees because we don't deal with kings who make decrees. But once a decree is made, it cannot be revoked. Before the ages began, God made this decree that his second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, would come into the world and die to save sinners. Notice that phrase, before the ages. What's the contrast? The wisdom of this age is passing away. The decree that God makes before the ages is what? It's eternal, goes on forever and ever. It cannot be revoked. The ultimate message that the apostles revealed in the New Testament is that of the Redeemer and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The Lordship of Jesus Christ. John says in Revelation eleven fifteen that there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. So what you have in the New Testament is the revelation of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The revelation of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The gospels are Christ's life. The acts of the apostles is Christ's mission. The epistles are Christ explained, and the revelation is Christ's reign. So how you build conviction as a believer, how you grow in your convictional strength is by coming to the word of God and encountering the lordship of Christ and endeavoring to submit your life to him. And you do that as much as you can. 
This, this becomes the food that you eat is the scriptures and ultimately the lordship of Jesus Christ. That you come to Christ and you say, he is my Lord and I will obey him no matter the cost. And when you do that, you grow in your conviction. You grow in your conviction. Now, Paul says that verse eight, the lost do not understand this. The lost do not understand this conviction. He, he highlights the rulers of the age. He says, not the rulers of this age, verse eight. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The people who were most powerful in the world at the time that Christ came, Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod Antipas, they crucified the Lord of glory. And Paul's point is often is that the elite people in the world don't understand what God is doing. The rulers of this age did not understand it. And that's true, I think, in large part today. You know, God chooses the weak of the world to shame the wise. They don't understand the lordship of Jesus Christ. But for the believer, there's an immense blessing in this. Look at verse nine. Paul says, look, the, the people of this world don't understand this, but the believer understands it, and they understand the blessing that God has for them. He says, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. He quotes Isaiah 64, verse four. And the point of Isaiah 64, four, is Isaiah is saying is that God is the God who acts. All the other gods of this world, so-called, are false gods, idols. They do nothing, they do nothing for you. But Yahweh is the God who acts. Christ is the Lord who acts on behalf of his people. And as you submit your life to the Lordship of Christ, you know that you have received spiritual blessings. Paul says in Ephesians 1.3 that he has blessed us, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so you know your blessings and the richness and the wealth, spiritually speaking, that you have in Christ. And this is why the martyrs were able to stand with backbone at the burning stake. You know the story of Thomas Cranmer when he was being burned at the stake? He put his hand out into the fire. Let his hand burn first. They weren't living for this age. They're saying, look, I have here no lasting city, but I seek the city that is to come. In Christ, I have every spiritual blessing. I've submitted my life to his lordship, and I am banking everything on his promises. Now, verse 10, who does this in our life? Paul now talks about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, God of very God. He is just as much God as, as the Father is and as the Son is. And Paul describes how the Holy Spirit builds conviction in our lives in verses 10 to 13. Look at verse 10. He says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Now, every New Testament believer is given the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Paul says in Ephesians 1.13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And the Spirit knows all about the mysteries of Christ because he is God. Verse 10, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. This isn't to say that the Holy Spirit's learning something, that the Holy Spirit is, is, is searching God and saying, oh, this is something new that I'm discovering. No, the Holy Spirit's God. He knows, he knows all of the thoughts of God as, as they occur. He knows all the attributes of God because he is those things. And Paul makes this point in verse 11. Look at verse 11. 
he, he makes this point about the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, it's an important point. He says, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? You know, you can know somebody really well. You can know your spouse really well, your kids really well, and you can be sitting there, you know, at the table. You're both eating a bowl of cereal and you're not talking and you're looking at that person and you're thinking, you know, I think I probably know what that person's thinking, but it's a probably. You, you don't know exactly what that person is thinking. The only person who knows exactly what that person is thinking is who? That person. And Paul says the only person who inexhaustibly knows God is that person, is the Holy Spirit. Now here's the amazing thing, is God puts his Holy Spirit, where? In us, in us. So God, the Holy Spirit, is bringing to bear the things of God which he knows into our lives. It's just a remarkable thing. Now, Paul makes the contrast again. Look at verse 12. He says, this spirit is not the spirit of this world. He says, we have not received the spirit of this world. It, it's not the spirit who imparts the things of this world, all the things that we've talked about. He says, but, verse, second part of verse 12, it is the spirit of God, but the spirit who is from God. And look what he says the Holy Spirit does that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So the Holy Spirit who indwells you helps you to understand God's word. Now, we believe that prophecy has ceased, that new revelation has ceased. We're not gonna come up with Revelation chapter 23 anytime soon. The canon is closed. But what God the Holy Spirit does is he helps to illuminate the Bible to you to where you begin to understand its truth. Listen to this quote from R.C. Sproul. He says, quote, though the scriptures themselves are light for us, there is need for additional illumination so that we may clearly perceive the light. The same Holy Spirit who inspires the scripture works to illumine the scriptures for our benefit. He sheds more light on the original light. Illumination is the work of the Holy Spirit. He helps us to hear, receive, and properly understand the message of God's word, end quote. So the Holy Spirit helps to illuminate God's word to us, and I think just personally speaking, uh, how he does this. Because pe people sometimes have asked this, well, how, how does the Holy Spirit help us understand God's word better? Aren't we supposed to simply you know, apply the, the rules of hermeneutics and that helps us understand God's word? What the Holy Spirit does, I think, is oftentimes he connects in your mind one scripture with another. Have you ever, have you ever encountered that where you're thinking about one scripture and then all of a sudden a new scripture comes to mind? Or you're in a situation and what the Holy Spirit does is he recalls the word of God that applies directly to that situation. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Or, or what he does is he takes a truth, a truth that we already know, and he puts it in our heart in a new way, where now that truth that we just once skated over becomes something that is treasured and meaningful to us. He, he puts conviction into it. Paul says, verse 13, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So, spiritual people refers to the Christians, refers to the mature. He says, we, we speak this, this, this New Testament revelation to the believers, and, and God the Holy Spirit does this work where they begin to know and understand the things of God. They begin to understand spiritual things. When I was in the Marine Corps, one of the things that I was exposed to were night vision goggles. Maybe you've seen those in the movies or something. I remember the, we, we, they got us in a classroom, they taught us how to use the, the goggles, and then they, that night, they took us out to a live fire range. They had targets down range, and you, you picked up your goggles, and you, you put them on, 
and then you would step up to the firing line. They had pop-up targets. You'd start, you know, shooting them. And I put on my night vision goggles, and I turned them on, and there was one problem. I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see anything. And uh, the Marine in front of me was, was, uh, was done shooting, and they said, Casper, get up to the line, get up to the line. I can't see anything. And, and uh, I, I, I talked to the instructor. I said, I can't, I, I don't, you know, this is my first time using them. For all I know, I've got some eye problem. I don't know. And uh, he says, just shoot. So here I am in this live fire range. Night fire, night vision goggles on. I'm shooting. I can't see a thing. You know, I'm just like, keep the rifle down range. Keep the rifle down range. You know, I just, just. You know what the problem was? The guy who gave them to me, he didn't put batteries in them. They weren't even functioning. So get the batteries in them. Next time, next field exercise, turn them on. Like, whoa! Oh my goodness! You know, I can, it's like I can see everything. I mean, yeah, there's like little green circles, but I, I can see at night. It's unbelievable. And what Paul's saying here is what God the Holy Spirit does is he gives you these special goggles, this special vision, which allows you to see spiritual things that you've never seen before. That's what he does where everything begins to be in color, where before you didn't see anything. This is the blessing of conviction. Look at verse 14. This is the blessing. Look at this. He describes the non-Christian, the natural person, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. That word folly means foolishness, Moriah to him. They, they just, just, yeah. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man looks at spiritual things in the dark. He doesn't see. He doesn't see. You, you've been talking to that family member? You walk him through the gospel? What do you think? Eh, eh, not for me. Not right now. I've got living to do. I need to have some fun. Yeah. You do you. What's going on? They don't see. They're shooting down the live fire range looking at nothing. They don't get it. But he says for the believer, look, look at the spiritual person. The spiritual person judges all things. You see. The spiritual person sees spiritual realities. The spiritual person understands what's going on. The spiritual person understands that we're in a spiritual battle. The spiritual person understands that Satan's real. Demons are real. The spiritual person understands that history ends with the second coming of our Lord. The spiritual person raises their kids in a certain way. Anybody ever call you crazy for the way you live your life? What do you mean you aren't coming to the bar with us? What do you mean you're doing this, you're disciplining your kids? What do you mean you're doing family? What are you doing? They don't get it. But you do. Why? Because you see the spiritual reality. They think that they're judging you. But you see things as they really are. That's the life of the Christian. That, that's what I think is just most amazing about Christianity. You see reality as it really is. You judge all things. You get it. And you know what? The naysayers, they think that they're judging you. They're not judging you. You know who your judge is? God. God. You're not my judge. God's my judge. You, you, you levy these attacks against Christianity? Yeah. Yeah. You don't know. I'm seen with the goggles on. You're looking in the dark. And this is where great Christians come to is they know what they believe, they know what they believe, they know where they stand with God, 
They know that God is with them, that God has given them these spiritual blessings. And then they just say, you know what? I'm not willing to compromise my conscience. This is where I, this is Luther. Here I stand, I can do no other. Is this you? Are you like this? Are you just trying to maybe get along with the people in the world? Have you come to this place of conviction and said, Lord, here I stand. I'm with you, and I can do no other. Paul says, verse 16, for who has understood the mind of the Lord? Again, talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit understands the mind of the Lord, so as to instruct him. He says, but we have the mind of Christ. We think like Christ. And that gives us Holy Spirit-filled confidence. It's not pride, it's confidence. You know, people, your friends might say, you know, you just your certainty of conviction, it, it just, it, it's, it's arrogant. No, it's not. Confidence in whom you've had, in whom you have believed. So, let me just give you four quick application points. Four quick application points. First, make sure, make sure, make sure that you have entered through the narrow gate of the gospel. That your entrance into the kingdom is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Second, this year, put yourself in the path of Scripture. Put yourself in the path of Scripture. To the mature, Paul says, we impart spiritual things. You want to get in the New Testament, get in the, into the Old Testament, and put yourself in the place where you can learn truth. And as you're doing this, third, ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate the Word of God to you. And ask the Holy Spirit to strengthen your convictions. And then fourth and finally, have the courage to walk in your convictions, to stand on the truth that the world stand against you. If we do that, if you do that, man, what would God do with this church? Amazing things, amazing things. What would God do in your life and in your family? Amazing things, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that we would be people of conviction, people who stand for the truth amidst this crooked and depraved generation. We pray, Lord, that we would be people who don't resort to the world's methods, but use the apostles' method of Jesus Christ and him crucified, the simplicity of the gospel. We pray, Lord, that we would be people of the word of God, that we would come to the word of God seeking wisdom that surpasses this age but goes to the age to come. And we pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit this year would illuminate the Word of God to us, that we would know the truth, the truth would set us free, and that we would make connections in the Word that we've never made before, and that those connections would not just be merely intellectual but would inflame our hearts to stand courageously. And Lord, may we display that courage to walk in our convictions no matter the cost. We ask all of this for your honor and your glory. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.